And let's turn in our Bibles to Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 11 through 16. 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 11 through 16. Hear the word of God. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. This is the word of God. We're taking a look at First and Second Chronicles today, and... If you start reading First and Second Chronicles, you're going you're gonna to feel like you're experiencing deja vu. And the reason is, First and Second Chronicles says a lot of things that First and Second Kings are, has already said. Uh, the first book of First Chronicles, uh, the first half is a genealogy of all the tribes of Israel. And the second half is about David and his, his rule, which basically is what the books of Samuel and, and Kings are. Second Chronicles is about Solomon's kingdom. And it's also about all the various kings that came after Solomon, and of course, all their failures. Um, especially in the kingdom of Judah. That's the focus of Second Chronicles. And Kings already mentions all this. So what is, what, first of all, what is the purpose for having two different books that pretty much say the same thing, almost. Right? I'm broad brushing and generalizing. And the purpose is in the, different, in the time when Chronicles was written compared to Kings. Chronicles was written about 100 years after the events of the Book of Kings. And that's very significant. Because the Book of Kings was written very near to what was happening in the book of Kings. When Israel, they were facing um, uh, their monarchy being built up with King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. They were in their golden years as a nation. And then there was this decline of that nation. When unfaithful kings started disobeying God, they started introducing idolatry and the worship of Canaanite religion into Israelite religion, into the religion of, of the Jews. And Chronicles was written after they went into exile because of their unfaithfulness. God first divided the nation and God allowed Babylon to completely destroy Jerusalem, to destroy its temple. And so no longer did they have their own nation. They were no longer sovereign. And the way that the Jews understood what was happening politically and socially in their nation, 
they directly linked it to disobedience to God and idolatry. Okay, that's how they understood it. So it's not this approach where political things happen purely for political reasons, nor was it the approach where social um, consequences happen purely because of social reasons. But when you read through the Bible, you see that political and social events are happening, national and international events are happening because of Israel's idolatry because of Israel's disobedience. That's why Babylon came in, destroyed Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. It was God's judgment. So it's kind of like if you were to understand the Twin Towers being attacked because of the infidelity and the idolatry of America, if you were to understand it that way. Right? It's complicated, but that's one way of modernizing what's happening in, first, in, in Kings and Chronicles, the way that the narrative is written in the Bible. Now, here's the thing. Why would someone write Chronicles 100 years later? What is happening 100 years later? What's happening is that after the Israelites have been exiled in Babylon, so after their Jerusalem and their nation is destroyed, the captives are taken away from that area and they're dispersed. Like uh, the, ba the Babylonian Empire is making them settle in different parts of their empire. And they're staying in, in a foreign land as refugees, as, as captives, sometimes worse, right? In Babylon. And what's happening is after when Babylon is on its decline, a new superpower is coming up, Persia. And what's happening at that time is that there's this powerful king from Persia called Cyrus. And he makes a decree after destroying Babylon, conquering Babylon, Persia becomes the new superpower. Cyrus decrees that all the Jews who are now exiled, who are living in the diaspora, in the Jewish diaspora, they are living in different parts of Babylon, Cyrus basically says, I am going to let you rebuild Jerusalem. I'm going to let you rebuild the temple, and I'm going to let you rebuild the, the city itself. And whoever wants to go and be a part of that effort, you can go. That's what's happening. And it's during that time, right, when Jerusalem, now fallen and is now being rebuilt, that Chronicles is being written. So the question is, why would the title of the sermon is Roots. So the question is, why is it important to look back on their national history at a time when a new generation of Jews are looking to rebuild that which has fallen? Why is that necessary? And <clears throat> what I want to propose to you is, it's very, we, we as an Asian American church, we can really learn from what's happening here. You know, um, I don't know about your personal experience, but my personal experience with the Asian American church has been a love-hate relationship, right? There are things about it I love, and then there are things about it that I don't. Uh, mistakes have been made. And typically, when we think about the Asian American church, we think that it's the first gen that made the mistakes. But in reality, it's not just the first gen, it's actually the second gen too that has made the mistakes. 
It's not only the, the Asian American adults in the church, but it's also the Asian American youth. It's also the EMs. It's also the KMs or CMs, depending if you know, you're Korean, Chinese, right? Etc. It's not just the leaders, and it's not just the people. It's both. So mistakes have been made in the church. How do we remember our roots? And how do we grow beyond that? Because if we're growing up as an Asian American church, we're, we're going into adulthood, right? If we continue to just stay at the roots, that's not healthy. You look at any plant, and if it never sprouts, if it never, there's no stalk, there are no leaves, there's no flowering, there's no budding, there's no fruit outside of the ground, and it just stays within the roots, it's unhealthy. That plant is an unhealthy plant. But at the same time, a plant that tries to grow and cuts off its roots is also unhealthy. There are no roots, right? So how does a, how does a church both understand its roots, embrace its roots, but also grow beyond it? What does that look like? And not only in general for the Asian American church, but for our church, our congregation specifically. What does it look like to have roots that are healthy and strong, but to also sprout and to grow beyond it? Um, Is there anything, I'm telling you right now, in order to get to a healthy point, Israel, the reason why the Jews during this time, why they face destruction, like I said, it's because of their idolatry. It's because of their unfaithfulness to God, right? So if the Bible is true, which I believe, and if that's what the Bible is telling us, right, what has happened to the point, what had to occur for the nation of Israel to get to the point where its idolatry and its infidelity to God caused its ruin. And what I'm telling you right now and what comes out in this text is the lack of repentance. The lack of repentance. Right? And so what I am proposing to you guys is if we can, if we can learn from this, right, in how God works and what God expects and what God's people look like when they're healthy, The question I'm asking you guys is, what do we need to repent of, right? What does the Asian American church, and specifically us, as a second-gen church, right? Those are our roots. What do we need to repent of, right? Do we even have anything to repent of? Do we have idols? Or is it just the first-gen church that has idols? But we, we see faith so much more clearly, right? Um, what is it that we need to address? What problems are there in our congregation, in our church, that we need to repent of, right? Um, if Christ is the head of the church, right? Let me ask you. You guys know Greek mythology, right? Hercules, he defeated the hydra. What's a hydra? It's like this, yeah, yeah, with multiple heads, right? Christ is the head of the church, so the church definitely should not look like a hydra, 
right? But when there is idolatry, that's basically what the church becomes. The church becomes a hydra because there are multiple heads. So let me ask you this for our congregation, right, specifically. Is race ahead of our church, right? Is that something that governs and defines our church life? What about socioeconomic class? What about our average age, right? Is that a, or our life stage, is that something that governs how we do church, how we live as a church? What about our passions and desires that we have, that we individually have and also share collectively? Is that ahead? What about the subcultures that we have? You know, at a certain time uh, back in the day, years ago, when the first-gen church, like 10, 15 years ago, when the first-gen church was, you know, uh, creating these EMs for the first time, these second-gen congregations back in the 80s and 90s, when these churches were popping up for the first time, um, the second-gen church was considered to be a bridge between the first-generation Asian American church and the host culture, meaning America, right? Or that specific city that that church was a part of. It was supposed to act as a bridge. But let me just tell you flatly, and this is something we need to consider for our congregation. Typically, second-gen churches have not become that bridge-building connection. They've either gravitated to one or two extremes. The first one is to completely lose itself under the KM, right? Where the second-gen church is just, it's not even, it, it doesn't even have its own identity, even though it has its own culture that's different and unique and distinctive from the first-gen church. So it gets absorbed into the KM. And those needs aren't being met that are specific to second-gen. The other extreme is that second gens, they leave the church and they cut ties altogether. And they, they do really well. They're successful and they're growing numerically and they're being discipled. But the problem is they've left the first gen in the dust and their roots are cut off. And typically they've taken those two routes because honestly, it's just easier to do it that way. It's hard to stay in the balance and in the tension what does it look like for us, right? So the, the person, we don't know who wrote Chronicles. Some people think it's Ezra. But the author of Chronicles, what was he thinking when he was writing this, this rehistory of Kings and Samuel for a new generation a hundred years later? What, is, what does he want to communicate, right? What is it that we today need to know to get back to our roots and to head forward with our future. What is it that we need to know, right? I'm gonna give you four things, and it's a pattern that happens. The pattern is, it begins with unfaithfulness. The people are unfaithful to God. What happens is God has compassion on them. The response is compassion. He sends messengers, and he tells them, come back to me, come back to me, right? It's kind of like if you're in a relationship and you really love someone, but that person you love is unfaithful, Right? What's the first thing? Come back to me. Right? The third thing is there's a lack of repentance. So there's unfaithfulness. God responds with compassion. He says, come back to me, my people. The people say, 
No, we don't want to, right? They don't repent of anything. They don't see that they've done anything wrong. And then what God responds with is wrath. Those are the four things. Unfaithfulness, compassion, unrepentance, and wrath. Now, when it comes to unfaithfulness, I just want to point out to you what the text is telling us in verses 12 through 14. It talks about Zedekiah, and the reason why I picked this verse, these are the last few verses of the book of 2 Chronicles. So 1 and 2 Chronicles ends with these words, right? Almost. There are a few verses after this. But the last king right before Jerusalem fell was Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, it's not that he was the worst of them, but he was representative of them. Basically, he was, the person that he was as a king was, was who all the other kings were. They were unfaithful, right? They didn't listen to God. They didn't humble himself before the prophet. Uh, they rebelled against the political powers near them and stiffened his neck. That's a Hebrew way of saying they were arrogant and proud. And he hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. The focus is on the king, but at the same time, the priests are culpable, the priests are at fault, and also the people. When you look in verse 14, it says, both the priests and the people, they were both exceedingly unfaithful. Like, the Bible could have just said unfaithful, but it said exceedingly. So basically what I'm trying to tell you is, no one is innocent here. No one is innocent. And you know, that's the case with the Asian American church. It's not that the first gens are so bad and they need to change. And it's not that second gens are so bad that, you know, they just don't get it. It's that there is no one who is innocent. Everyone is guilty. That's the problem, is that everyone is guilty, right? Um, and what happens is, in, if you look in verse 15, the God of their fathers, right? The God of their fathers, he's sending these messengers persistently, and he's sending them to the people, and he's having compassion on the people and the dwelling place, right? And it's interesting for the Jews, for them to think God of their fathers, it's, it's a good thing. Like, the God of their fathers is like, yeah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's this reminder that, the, that these people that they respect, maybe, maybe not Jacob, but definitely Abraham, right? that they respect, that God is the God of them. Yeah, so God is a God of us because we're their children. We're, we're, we're Abraham's descendants. So if God is their God, then God is our God. So it's this very positive thing. But you know what's interesting about the Asian American church? When you think of the God of the, our fathers, it's typically not positive. It's typically negative. Because the God of our fathers in the Asian American church, he's all about duty. He's all about do this, do that. And he doesn't really care about how we feel or think. Right? So when we hear God of our fathers, it's like, I don't want that God. That's the Old Testament God. That's a bad God. We like our God. Our God is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Right? He's long-suffering. He's patient with us. Right? He doesn't merely care about what we can do for the church. He actually cares for us as a church, being a church, right? And the thing is, it's a good challenge, guys, to us when we think of that. You see, to think of God having compassion on us, not as merely my God, but 
the God of our fathers, the very fathers of our Asian American church that have neglected or abused us, quote unquote, okay? To think of it in that language is tremendously humbling. And it makes God look huge. Like he is a great God. Because you realize that you cannot box God in to your own individual theology that you're comfortable with. That he is your God, yes, and he will always be your God in Christ. But at the same time, he will always be the first generation's God as well. With all the disagreements and all the differences that we have, and all maybe the resentment that we have against a first-gen church, he is their God, right? Um, and he continues to send messengers persistently. You see, for the Jews, they didn't want to hear it, right? They didn't want to hear it. They just wanted their own way. God kept sending their prophets. The, the, the people and the kings, they would kill the prophets or they would chase them away, right? What's the case with the Asian American church, right? We actually want these messengers, but we feel like, you know, because of differences between the first-gen church and the, and the EM pastor or the youth pastor, they, they get chased away, right? And we're like, we actually want them. And we're like, this is, this, is happening to, this is happening to all of us. It's like, our pastors never stay. And that was my experience, too, growing up, uh, going to church in Flushing, New York, is that... My pastors never stayed. We had, a, we, had a, we had to plan our retreats. We had to elect our own officers. Like, we had to care for our middle school kids. Like, we had to call them. We had to go to the movies with them. We, and it was something we enjoyed. But the point is, we didn't have adults to do this for us, right? And so the thing is, we see the coming and going as an Asian American church of our leaders as a negative thing. And it, it's, you're right. In some sense, it is very negative. But there is a redeeming quality to it. You know, at the same time, yeah, pastors keep coming and going. But let me just kind of put it into this language for you. Pastors keep coming. Like God is still sending pastors to the Asian American church. You know what that shows? God still has not given up on the Asian American church. He is still having compassion on them. Like if God gave up on the Asian American church, he would stop sending leaders to them. He would stop sending messengers. Okay? But he's still sending them. Like he wants the truth to be there. Right? It's a different way to look at it. But you know, I'm not here to make you feel comfortable. I'm here to challenge you with love, right? So he still has compassion. But as the messengers came through the history of Israel, the response, the collective response, verse 16, at the beginning of verse 16, is unrepentance. What does it say? They kept mocking the messengers, and they kept despising his words, scoffing at the prophets. So what's going on here? They're rejecting both the message and the messenger. Both the message and the messenger. And, you know, it, this is really interesting. What does unrepentance look like in the Asian American church? In a, in a culture where we bow to authority, we say yes to authority, we, we are taught from birth 
to be obedient, right? To be faithful. What does unrepentance look like for an Asian American Christian? <laughs> right? I love you guys, but I have to say this. What it looks like is we say yes to them, but then our hearts are in a totally different place. Like that's the typical Asian response, right? You, you obey them, you say, in Korean it would be, ne. <laughs> yeah, right? You say that, but then in your heart, you don't support it, you're not, you're not convinced of it, you don't believe it. You know what that is, guys? That's unrepentance, right? I'm not saying that the Asian authorities, the first-gen authorities are always right. They're not. I think, I hope I've established that at the beginning of the sermon, right? Everybody is at fault. No one is innocent, right? But, guys, what it looks like to us is that, for example, if a first-gen church, right, asks us to do something, and I'm, I know it's complicated, I know this, right? I know this is complicated, and what I'm about to say is a very simplified form of it. But let's say, okay, let's do this. Let's say the first-gen church tells us before we became independent, to go out to in-town suites and Willow Trail and bring them in, disciple them. And then we as a second-gen church, we said, no, we're not comfortable with those people. But then in our hearts, and when we meet together as a second-gen group, we say, no, we're not comfortable. What did you guys think? Oh, I, didn't, I don't know. I don't really agree with it. But then when, we meet, when they're meeting with us in a church office, we're like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll think and pray about it. But then we never pray about it. And then we don't even think about it. We think about the opposite thing, you know? Like that kind of thing. You know what that is, guys? That's unrepentance. I love you guys so much. But when we say yes in a very Asian, stoic, you know, Confucian way where we, you know, we have, we're, we're faithful to our elders, right? But then in our hearts, we just don't want to, right? We're talking about God's word now, right? In our hearts, with God. Now, I know, I know, first-gen church, they've neglected and abused second-gen. I get that. I was part of that, right? I, I experienced that when I was a teenager. I experienced that in college. I experienced that when I was a single minister, and I experienced that when I was, when I was a married minister. I get it, right? I experienced it all through life. <laughs> it's a wonder why I still love the Asian church. But what I'm telling you guys is this approach when we look at God's word and we know what it says, we know what God is saying, but then Monday through Saturday, we're like, we're living our lives any way that we want. But on Sunday, we say these grand words about how I'll surrender my life to you, God. I, all my life is yours, God. And then we go on Monday, and then we go through Saturday, and we're just like, no, not, it's, it looks like as if none of our lives is surrendered. There's no part of our lives that's given to God. Like, we need to... We need to stop singing these songs then, right? Because you know what that is, guys. And I'm saying this because I love you, but also I'm saying this because I am fearful, is that when we sing songs that say, all my life is yours, and then we continue to live a life that doesn't sing that, 
at school, at, at family, at work. We're being the same. We're being the same. We're unrepentant. We're mocking the message and we're mocking the messengers. We're mocking the message and we're mocking the messengers, right? And I'm not talking about pastors. I'm talking about the messenger. Jesus Christ is the messenger. I am the way, the truth, right? We're not just mocking the message. We're mocking the messenger, right? And because of their unrepentance, in the last part of verse 16, wrath comes out from the Lord. And it rose against his people. And it actually says, this is a really scary statement. Until the re- verse 16, um, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. There was no healing. There, was, there will come a time when there will no longer be grace and forgiveness. When Christ returns, there will come a time when our unrepentance year after year will come out and God will hold us accountable to that, right? Now, here's the hope. The last two verses of Second Chronicles 36. Can you guys turn to it? Because I love this. This is the hope. <laughs> if I were to cut it off here, this would be a very depressing message, right? This is the hope, guys, okay? So I told you all this, right? And first of all, can I thank you for not walking out? (laughs) Right? But this is the hope. Verse 22, verse 23, 2 Chronicles 36. And at first you're going to be like, why is this a hope? But I want to explain to you. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdom of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. The hope is not just that the temple is being rebuilt. That's not the only thing. You know how the, the passage I, we just, I just talked through ended with wrath in verse 16? This is a, verse 22 and 23 is a, is a passage about redemption and hope. It's not only that the temple itself is being rebuilt, but The person, Cyrus, king of Persia, he himself is a, he points to the, to the love and the work of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you why. Historically, like for example, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they would destroy whatever, whatever nation they conquered. They would destroy it. They would decimate it. Um, Sometimes they would record like, and then I'm going to be a little bit graphic. They would like cut off the thumbs of the kings that they conquered, right? They would gouge out the eyes, and they would lead him along with a rope, you know, showing him off like a trophy. What it was brutal. 
like they would do that in order to show their power and their superiority over these other nations. The king of Persia was very different. What the king of Persia did, once he conquered a nation, he would offer the kings of the nations he conquered freedom to rule their land as long as they were faithful to him. He would do that. And so he was historically called the righteous king. <laughs> Interesting, huh? And because now he would let his kings live without like killing them off or punishing them brutally and inhumanely, he would actually let them rule their own land. You know what he was called? What do you think a ruler who is now ruling rulers is called? King of Kings. The King of Kings. And if you remember Jesus Christ, he receives the same title. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you see Cyrus, it's not just the act of rebuilding the temple. The person himself. You see, Cyrus is a Gentile. He's a Persian. He's not a Jew. And do you know why these verses are so close together? The verses about how Israel failed and how Cyrus, a Gentile king, is this righteous king of kings. It's telling the Jews, look, you think that your worth and your righteousness as a nation, that your strength as a nation was found in your Jewishness? It's not. It's not because you are a special nation. It's because... God, who is your king, who is your God, it's because he chose you. That's what makes you special. It's not because you're, you're a Jew. It's not because of your, your, your conquerings and your efforts and your national triumphs. But it's because of the God who reigns over you as a nation. That's what makes you special. And the fact that Cyrus, who was historically called the king of kings, who was, who, was, who was known to be a just king and a righteous ruler. Let me give you another example. He refused to enslave his captives. He is the first king in that Mesopotamian history to be a king who would refuse to enslave the people that he captivated, that he captured. Everybody else would enslave them. That's the, that's the natural thing to do, is to enslave them. Cyrus did not. He freed them. And so he was known as this liberator. And so you see how Jesus Christ, our King of Kings, right? The righteous one, the righteous ruler, how he frees us from sin slavery. Like, do you see the hope there in just the person of King Cyrus, and if you look in Isaiah 45, verse 1, to make it biblically, absolutely, undeniably clear, Cyrus is the only non-Jew referred to as the Messiah. Isaiah 45, 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. And that word anointed is the Hebrew word for Meshiach, or our English word transliterated Messiah. He is the only Gentile referred with that very honorific title, anointed Messiah. 
Even the way that Cyrus was entombed, it was very humble compared to the other kings. The other kings would be very elaborate, lots of fancy medals and jewels. Uh, Cyrus's tomb was very humble. And it speaks into the kind of humble, suffering servant that Jesus Christ was when he came to earth. You see, there's only one point in history where the divine, unrelenting wrath of God comes together with the divine, unrelenting, redeeming love of God. And there's only one point historically where, that, where both exist together, and that's at the cross. That's the hope of our church. That's the future of the Asian American church. And if we remain unrepentant, I fear that the Asian American church is going to lose, especially the second gen church. It's a very specific bubble if we talk about it and go into it deeper. Like you're talking about a people, third culture people, who do not fit in in white churches, black churches. They don't fit in in Asian language churches. So they've created a bubble where you have both. And if we continue to be unrepentant as a church and we don't take this seriously, my fear is that the Asian American church will lose its relevance. Ultimately, that the bridge building um, calling that we were supposed to have is gonna go away. Because if we continue to run like a youth ministry and we continue to repeat the sins of our fathers, we're going to lose our relevance. Just a thought. But there is hope. And the hope is to cut off all the heads of the hydra, right? And just leave one head. And that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together to look into your word and to consider.